Uninvisible is a support podcast that provides information, ideas, suggestions, and experiences that deal squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice of any kind. We do provide support, concepts, ideas, discussions, and information that you can use to make sure that you are being heard and that your concerns are being addressed. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing, but we will be here for you along your journey. We welcome all comments about our episodes and, of course, the correction of any errors. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our Terms of Service and Privacy Policy, which are available on our website located at www.uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Most of all, we welcome your stories and experiences to share with our community because without you, this community and the benefit it offers all of us would not exist. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Of course, in the event that you are having a medical emergency of any kind, consult your physician or emergency services. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman, and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. A quick note for those of you tuning into this episode. This interview was recorded on a day when there was construction happening in the apartment above mine. So my apologies in advance for any banging you may hear during this interview. We've tried to reduce it as much as possible. So hopefully you will still enjoy the content of this episode and enjoy Dr. Muller. She's really amazing. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us today. I am here with a guest who I have been wanting to have on the show for quite some time now, our esteemed guest. <laughs> yes, an integrative endocrinologist with both UCLA and uh, the VA here in Los Angeles, Dr. Rashmi Muller. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for hosting me. I really appreciate it. Oh, my gosh. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Um, so I found you through Dr. Rothman, who's been on the show before. Correct. And um, starting to work with you really helped turn a lot of things around for me in terms of what I was dealing with. Um, but I was wondering if you could talk to us a little about whether you have a personal connection to invisible illness aside from your work as a practitioner. Yeah, so um, in my work, um, I see patients with chronic stress and fatigue, mm -hmm. and uh, that tends to be the invisible illness that I'm dealing with most often. Mm -hmm. um, it's typically from a multitude of sources mm -hmm. uh, in terms of patients' etiologies for their chronic stress and fatigue. Um, personally, uh, I have chronic stress and fatigue myself. Uh, I mean, I'm, you're an MD. Of course you do. <laughs> besides just work, I'm yeah. a special needs parent mm. and um, just juggling work and life and caregiving can be exhausting and giving my myself the space and time and um, emotional freedom to mm. accept and uh, deal with those challenges has offered me quite a bit of like empathy and um, a better understanding of what my patients who deal with chronic stress and fatigue are feeling. Yeah. 
Uh, and I think that's probably my strongest connection on a personal level yeah. to invisible illness. I think it's very clear working with you. I mean, I can say from my own experience, you know, um, and we'll get into this, but the first time I saw you, you sat with me for over an hour. Um, and this has continued in all of our appointments. Um, so you're certainly able to accommodate a level of care that is not typical in every circumstance. Um and definitely the things that we discuss are so integrative. So it's really interesting to have someone like you with this medical expertise as well as this, um, you know, psychological and, and sort of meditative approach as well. Um, so do you ever find that you have patients who are coming in to see you aside from the chronic stress and fatigue, which you're obviously very familiar with, who are sort of borderline hypochondriacs or... Um, you think you think might be attention seeking or is it really that these patients are genuinely people who are dealing with invisible problems? Um, I certainly haven't encountered anyone who I would characterize as a hypochondriac yeah. uh, by any means. Um, not every person I see has a quote unquote diagnosable endocrine disorder or hormone imbalance that you could validate on lab testing. Mm. Um, that does not mean they're not suffering from chronic stress and fatigue. And I think there are approaches and ways in which we can um, help those patients find their balance in yeah. terms of their own health and wellness that don't rely on traditional approaches because sometimes the traditional approaches lead to people saying, oh, you don't have diagnosable condition X based on your hormone testing, so you must all be in your head. Yeah. And and that's the framework that I really try to avoid and I'm trying to shift. Mm. Um, but certainly hypochondriacism or dealing with patients who, you know, think they're ill and otherwise aren't, um, I, I think if, if patients feel ill and stressed, that's enough for me. I don't really need to know the specifics of the causes because it can be from anything. Yeah, that's really reassuring to hear because I ask that question of every practitioner who's on the show and every single one, including you, has said, mm, hypochondria, no, don't really see it. It's people with legitimate issues. So that's yeah. very reassuring. Um, you know, I realized also that there are probably people listening who don't necessarily know what an endocrinologist is or what the endocrine system is. So maybe you could give us a little like quick background on what that is and, and how it all functions. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Happy to. So, uh, an endocrinologist is someone who specializes in the treatment of patients with hormonal disorders. So hormones being, um, small chemical molecules secreted from a gland or one part of the body that then travel, uh, to another part of the body to exert its action. Mm -hmm. Um, so glands that people are familiar with are things like the thyroid and adrenal gland, the pituitary gland. Um, I also, as an endocrinologist, see patients um, who have diabetes because mm -hmm. uh, the pancreas is both an endocrine and exocrine gland. So the wow. exocrine part of it means it's the digestive enzyme portion of it. And the endocrine portion is the um, insulin and glucagon that's secreted. Okay. So you're really dealing with glands that are all over the body. It's not Correct. just a single system. Correct. And there's an interplay and crosstalk 
amongst the glands and among the hormones. So the complexity is something that um, I love. Mm. Um, it's a source of just great interest and academic um, uh, like curiosity. Curiosity, yeah, academic curiosity. Yeah. Um, but also, it's um, it's a place where we just don't know all the answers. I was going to say, is, yeah. I think it's one of the like the, the most under-researched or like least understood areas of medicine. So I don't think it's under, under-researched or in any way, but I do think that um, the approaches have been fairly dogmatic in terms of te- hormone testing, mm. and I think we can make a couple of changes there. I think we are very quick to reflexively test hormones in patients um, looking for an answer, and that reflexiveness leads to some patients having abnormalities or having no abnormalities, but then we automatically characterize them as you have a disease, you don't. Mm. But then some patients feel bad regardless, right? So yeah. you can be in the category that's diagnosed as having something, be on the appropriate treatment for that something, and not feel well. Yeah. Or you could have been in the, the category that was told that they didn't have a hormone abnormality and feel unheard. Mm-hmm. So I think both both types lead to problems. Yeah, like it's much more nuanced in a lot of Absolutely. ways. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, what tests do you first use to determine the various invisible illnesses that you're working with? And which do you find, which of these conditions do you find to be the most recurrent in your practice as well? Yeah, so most people um, who come to see me have some knowledge of the endocrine system or have been told that they have an endocrine problem. Mm. Um, so I'm not usually doing the first round of testing. In many cases, I'm usually refer- reviewing outside testing. Got it. And then if there's something on outside testing that needs follow-up or needs to be clarified, I will do appropriate testing based on what the patient kind of brings in in terms of their prior workup. Mm. If I'm seeing a patient... And, and I often do in my, in, in my VA practice where it's not a referral, but just a patient who's coming in for the first time mm. without a diagnosed condition. Um, I'm very, very unlikely to order hormone testing as the first step because mm. I usually find that, um, asking detailed questions in a history and taking the time to really hear a person's story is more likely to get me to the answer Mm. of not necessarily solving their invisible illness of stress and fatigue, but at least gets me on the right path towards working towards that goal. And it allows me a way to get to know my patient and also align our common goal, which is treatment and care. Yeah. And that it doesn't always involve testing. Yeah. I mean, again, I will say in my experience with you, the first time I sat down with you, you were like, okay, so you were born and? Right. And I sat there and I was like, wait, what? Really? You want me to go back? Now? I don't even remember that. Right. But we really did this huge detailed history. And in doing that history, it even became clearer to me things that had been going on for perhaps longer than I'd realized, you know, and then we were able to dig deeper. So it's really fascinating. Yeah. And I actually, that's what I love about my job. It's, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily figuring out the hormone mysteries. Cause frankly, there's 
a million reasons why hormone testing can be off. And mm. we can maybe talk about that later if you want to, yeah. but, but, but truthfully, um, what I really enjoy is, is taking what I call like a longitudinal biopsychosocial history. Mm. So the biopsychosocial history was, was first brought into medical, um, training and medical history taking um, by psychiatrists mm. who really felt that it's important to uh, integrate the social history and the psychological wellness of a person with their chronic medical disease. Mm. Um, family practice uh, or expert family practitioners do this as, as they get to know their patients over time. Sure. If you're seeing a patient for the first time as a consultant, mm you're often getting an editorialized view of what's happened. And, and what's nice about doing this and, and what it allows is that when I take this approach with my patients, um, I not only hear about them and their view of their lives and how they see themselves in the world, um, which matters when you're dealing with patients with chronic stress and fatigue. It yeah. matters how they view themselves and how they view the stress and the burden that they feel has been thrust upon them or that they have taken on. Yeah. Um, but it also allows me to understand how they characterize their illness hmm. and when it happened. Yeah. The example I like to give people when I'm describing it is, um, Let's say you got diagnosed with diabetes when mm -hmm. your parents got divorced at age eight. Hmm. That diagnosis and the way you deal with your diabetes and all of the stress and struggle that comes with learning how to be a diabetic patient, if you're a kid at eight, is now then couched with this worldview of your parents splitting up and life being really, really hard because divorce is hard. Yeah. And if I see that person as an adult at age 28, yeah. you know, 20 years later, and I say, when were you diagnosed with diabetes? And they say at age eight, and then we just kind of move on. Mm. Their distress and specifically their diabetes related distress. Yeah hasn't always been addressed mm. in that situation. And if they're doing fine and they've coped and they're doing great, then no big deal. And it's not an issue. Yeah. But when you're seeing me for chronic stress and fatigue, it's important for me to know that because our emotional view of our disease and our emotional view of how things got us off track and off our path mm. is incredibly important to getting us back on track. Yeah, absolutely. And I, the key word that you use there is integrate. It is this integrative approach and the idea of root cause mm -hmm. as well, which is a pretty radical approach, you know, when it comes to the traditional Western medicine, you know, sort of industry as we know it, because we're used to treating when there's a problem rather mm -hmm. than going, okay, let's look at what's causing the problem, maybe dealing with that stress right. to actually fix a lot of the other symptoms. So... You know, you have mentioned that a lot of people are coming to you and they've got stress and fatigue and invisible symptoms going on and they're not necessarily feeling heard. Are, do you think that you are taking this integrative approach not only for to really get to the bottom of it, but also in a way to like address patients' feelings that they're shuttled from specialist to specialist and trying to find answers and how stressful that can be on a patient? 
Yes. Um, I definitely think that that is a part of it. Mm. Feeling unheard and feeling like your doctor's thrown their hands up. Um, I don't want to make it sound like I am the end all be all diagnostician. I'm not Dr. House. (laughs) I think you are. So let's just say that. Okay. You're a version. Maybe not for your general audience, but but that being said, like I don't I don't think I have magical answers. Right. What I what I what I think I do well mm-hmm. is help patients find their way or their path back to their own their own wellness. Right. Yeah. Um I've been practicing integrative medicine since 2011. I started off by doing um, integrative diabetes and using mind-body techniques to help patients with diabetes manage the stress from having diabetes. Yeah. Um, And from there, I had to deal with uh, patients who had chronic fatigue and thyroid and adrenal issues and those diagnoses that many endocrinologists, you know, kind of don't know what to do with, for example, adrenal fatigue. Yeah. Um, That's a big one that people, it's sort of become a buzzword in the wellness community, hasn't it? You know, I feel like adrenal fatigue got cool when Gwyneth Paltrow started talking about it. It's that goop thing. (laughs) Right. And so an adrenal fatigue is not a diagnosis that Mm. my colleagues uh, accept. Yeah. um, Just due to the characterization of it and the description of it. Mm. And I can't disagree with them because I think the way it is characterized online doesn't give credence to what the patients are feeling Mm. or actually what's physiologically even going on in the body. Interesting. So uh, the classic description online is burnout and fatigue from a burnout of the adrenal glands from chronic stress. Mm. And so it's actually stress, adrenals, fatigue, not adrenals, fatigue and stress. (laughs) Right. And on top of this, the, the notion or concept that your adrenals will just burn out one day Mm. um, from chronic stress and fatigue just isn't accurate. Right. right? Um, absolutely. There are diagnosable disorders that are endocrine disorders where you have either an overfunction or underfunction of the adrenal gland, specifically as it relates to the stress hormone cortisol, which mm-hmm. is what adrenal fatigue tends to, to talk about. But not only are there multiple other hormones secreted from the adrenal glands that never get discussed in adrenal yeah. fatigue, um, there are are also very few patients who truly have a hormone abnormality who so that's one issue is yeah. the, uh, the other hormones of the adrenal gland that don't ever really get discussed mm. and number 2 there are so many patients with symptoms of adrenal fatigue mm. that don't have a hormonal abnormality right and to blame it all on adrenal fatigue when Number one, it's not appropriately named. Number two, it doesn't characterize what's going on. Yeah. It just doesn't like help medically, anyone. it's not responsible exactly, is it? It's because that's not exactly what it is. It's not exactly what it is. It's not exactly what's going on. Yeah. And for years as an integrative endocrinologist, I struggled with how to address these patients in a respectful and appropriate fashion, understanding that I am an endocrinologist trained by traditional Western systems, Mm. but also I take an integrative approach to my patients and finding a way to integrate those two aspects of my life um, took some doing and took some research and homework, but I think 
turning to the neuropsychiatric literature and looking at the work that's been done in other fields that aren't necessarily endocrine has helped me come up with some answers. Mm, It's really interesting. Well, and especially because you're running these programs at UCLA and at the VA, you're definitely also in a position of influence to actually change the course of treatment for a number of patients, particularly with the people you're training. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and certainly, um, I have had more endocrinologists come to me and tell me that they are interested in learning an integrative approach and Mm -hmm. want to discuss this. And, and specifically when it comes to fatigue, um, I tend to, again, not focus on the hormones, but try to get to the root cause of the stress and fatigue. Mm -hmm. And we know for a fact that patients with trauma, um, whether it's the quote unquote, big T trauma of violence and war and rape and tragedies like that. um, That certainly we recognize, but there's also what psychiatrists call little T traumas, which are living with chronic disease, being raised in a, in an ad, in a home as a child with, you know, adverse, um, like emotional experiences. Emotional experiences. Yeah. Yeah, Adverse childhood, childhood experiences plays a huge role in how our bodies cope with stress. Yeah. And there are diagnosed uh, brain changes on MRI images of patients who've been exposed to stress and trauma. Mm. And so that's where I turned to get some root cause answers. Yeah. Because uh, the hormonal testing just wasn't providing me with the information satisfactory for me as a physician to feel like, I could very clearly say that my patient had something A, wrong with them, or B, not wrong with them. Mm. And then even if I said that to my patients, like I like I mentioned before, my patients sometimes didn't fit either category. Yeah. It's really interesting because it's, it, it's, I mean, it, it is that, that thing that you were saying about being Dr. House, you know, like you really are like digging through these mysteries. Again, I'm not Dr. House. <laughs> I, know, I know, but there is that, that, that discovery phase, right? Like where you really are looking I, it's, at so I, many more I factors. call it curiosity. You know, yeah. I, I wrote a, an editorial piece for an endocrine practice journal mm-hmm. and um, I really, I really think if we can keep our doctors curious about what they're seeing in patients and what patients are experiencing, Mm. then we can get to the bottom of it. But without that intellectual curiosity, if it doesn't fit one of our baskets, we just, you know, throw the whole thing away. And I never want a patient to feel thrown away. So, you know, you've talked a lot about how your approach is a little bit different than the way that doctors are traditionally trained in this country Mm -hmm. to treat patients. So what are your thoughts about the U.S. system, not only with the way that doctors are trained, but also with the way that we're expected to live our lives in terms of like work-life balance? These are sort of two different questions, you know? Yeah. Are we we setting ourselves up to fail? Like, is that? So that's a tough one. Yeah. Um, So in terms of how doctors are trained, I will say we are making major progress in changing that. I have the privilege of sitting on a number of uh, committees at the school of medicine here in Los Angeles, the Mm. David Geffen school of medicine. And we are training our leaders to be curious and empathic and humble and advocates for our patients. Mm. And certainly in terms of training, we have our eye on the prize in terms of creating that ideal physician who 
is able to best advocate for patients in terms of in terms of training physicians yes. to be able to to approach a patient with invisible illness that doesn't necessarily fit the standard boxes. Yeah. Um, so, so I think we're doing a good job in terms of training. Mm. In terms of the U.S. healthcare system, I'm probably out of my league to talk about you know the challenges we face in trying to come up with a better model. Mm. Um, I do think the time limits that most primary care physicians and most physicians in large hospital systems face is unfortunate. Yeah. Um, it really doesn't lend itself well to providing that ideal patient centered experience, Mm -hmm. um, which is what we all strive for. Yeah. Um, I think I have the privilege in my job at the VA, uh, to take the time I need with my veteran patients. I also think the VA has been incredibly insightful and prescient in, in thinking about the future of healthcare delivery. Mm -hmm. Um, not only were they first to integrate these um, otherwise complementary and alternative approaches. Mm. So yoga and Tai Chi at the VA has been going on for years. That's I, I never would have known that. If, I, I, know if I, I think that's so cool. Yeah. Um, it's really a privilege to be able to refer someone for yoga and Tai Chi and know that my yoga and Tai Chi instructors are there to treat my patients and I don't have to send them to some studio out somewhere else. And if anyone deserves it, it's disabled veterans. Absolutely. Not only have they been leading the way there, Mm. um, they've also been first to offer acupuncture and deal with um, veterans in terms of offering alternatives for uh, opioid usage and Mm. helping patients wean from opioid usage mm. because so many of our veterans have suffered from the opioid epidemic. Yep. And, you know, the other thing that I think has been wonderful being at the VA is telemedicine. I, one of the other hats I wear is I also um, supervise the telehealth program. In terms of telemedicine, I think the way the VA is leading the nation is that by offering more telemedicine and telemedical approaches, we can meet the patients where they are quite literally. Yeah. So I have the ability to do a telephone follow-up via an old school telephone, mm-hmm. or I can leverage the technology we have and use a smartphone linked to a tablet that has their view of their, their medical record. Mm-hmm. And I can do a full visit that way. Wow and not have the patient have to drive in. And what's really interesting to me about that approach is that I get to see sometimes where the patients live and how they're living. Yeah. And so much of invisible illness is environment, environmental and your lived experience as a patient. And when you come to my office, I see the version that you present mm. and what you're able to present. Yeah. But I don't. Is it weird for you being in my house right now? <laughs> no, you're not at all. <laughs> but but it's it's a different yeah. experience, right? Like, yeah. and if you're seeing someone with chronic trauma, mm-hmm. like I do so often at the VA, um, seeing them in their home and seeing what their lived experience like just provides you with so much more insight. Yeah, and it allows me to be so much more integrative and thoughtful in my approach. Yeah. And really to see whether people are setting themselves up for success or failure in their homes, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then what do you think, like, 
in terms of lifestyle too, you know, like you're talking about. Yeah, the second part of your question. Yeah, <laughs> like you're talking about visiting these these patients and seeing what their lives are like. But in terms of the way that we sort of expect people to live now and the hours people have to keep for work and, you know, all that kind of balancing act, do you think yeah, that? So I probably am the worst person to answer the question about work-life balance because... <laughs> Because I don't, you work know, really hard. I don't know that I have any. But yeah. that being said, I don't know that any of my patients have any. Mm. And I don't know that we live in a society that values that. Yeah. And that's those, what I'm getting at, really. And yeah. those changes um, need to be on a systemic level, mm. right? I would love to tell my patients, oh, you just need like a vacation or you just need a break from work yeah. or you just need a day where you can unplug mm. and a day, geez, just a day. But Ooh. I don't know. There are so many of my patients for whatever reason cannot unplug. Yeah. And I, me included, there's, yeah. there's no way you'll ever find me without my cell phone within, you know, mm. arm's distance. I have a child with special needs who suffers from epilepsy mm. No one's going to tell me to take my phone away. Yeah. And I think so many of my patients are in that same, you know, bind. Mm. They don't have the ability to unplug for whatever reason. And so I think giving platitudes and, you know, non-specific advice just doesn't help anyone achieve their goals. So I think... Ra until the system changes and mm. until we have the resources and help we need to change as a society and, and put our mental health and well-being at the forefront of mm. our care, until we really do that, I think what I try to do is is try to navigate with the patients in terms of small incremental changes that they can make. Mm. What is something you can do? What is something that sounds reasonable to you? What would be most healing for you? I think the challenge is, is that most of my patients don't always know the answer to that question. Right. So is it your, do you step in then with suggestions? So I never try to tell a patient what they're thinking or feeling. Mm -hmm. I then actually turn to my yoga training. Mm -hmm. um, oh, so you're trained as a yoga instructor. Oh yeah, I'm a yoga instructor. Well, this makes <laughs> so much sense. Things are coming together <laughs> in my mind in a whole new way. <laughs> yeah, um, I think you cannot... You know, before I tell you what I think about things. Hmm. As also, when did you have time to train as a yoga instructor? That's a lot of work. Uh, prior to children, when oh. I was delusional about what I was going to do with my time. <laughs> because before you have children, you think you have all the time in the world. Yeah. Um, but, but also, like, a medical career... You know, a full-time medicine career is like... I don't even know how you have time for anything else, let alone... Well, so I really, <laughs> I really viewed yoga as just it, it, from the the very minute I set set foot in my first class, mm. nearly nineteen years ago now. Mm. Um, it just felt right to me. Yeah, and and not everyone's going to have that experience with yoga, and that's fine. Most people view yoga as an exercise form, and that's fine. I'm not trying to convince anyone that yoga is the end all be all of integrative approaches, but what I have found for me is that using a yoga-based approach um, has allowed me the self-awareness and insight to let me know what my body needed. Mm. So many of my patients 
just don't know what they need because they haven't felt well in so long that they have forgotten that. Yeah. And you don't, you lose a sense of what it feels like to be in your body. You don't understand it anymore. And so much of healing and so much of the integrative approach is based on attention and awareness. Mm. And that, and there's, and I don't pretend to be the one that created the saying, and I would be at a loss to tell you who said this, but <laughs> um, that to which we give attention grows. Yeah. But if we're not aware, we can't give attention to. Right. In my yoga training and in my practice, when I encounter a patient who really just doesn't know the next step. Yeah. We pause and, and I have them do some self-reflection exercises because mm-hmm. I don't know your lived experience. Only you do. Yeah. And only you can, can help decipher that. And I acknowledge the fact that sometimes I get a filtered view of the history. I get what people are willing to share. Mm-hmm. And over time, you know, their ability to share and, and, and troubleshoot their own path becomes more clear. But I really view myself as a guide here. I'm not the mm. person solving the problems. It sounds like there's a lot of removal of ego, not only for you as a practitioner, but also for the patients. Like the idea that like if we remove Absolutely. a perception of how things should be or that we have so, all the answers. So much of suffering for both patients and physicians yeah. is about that ego-based experience, right? I'm going to go to the doctor. They're going to give me the answer. Mm -hmm. And the doctor saying, okay, well, you came to see me and I have all the answers. Both are (laughs) falsehoods. Yeah. Both are falsehoods. It really should be a partnership. Mm -hmm. And I view it as walking hand in hand with my patients. Mm -hmm. I don't know where the destination is all the time because sometimes the patients don't know. But I'm willing to go on that journey with you mm. and I view you as a partner in your care. Yeah. And ultimately, you're the person that's going to dictate what you do with your body. I'm not holding anyone's, you know, hand and forcing them to take medicine because that's not my role. Yeah. No, but that's to me, that's that's revolutionary, you know. In terms of, I mean, I know, I know, like, you're making a face at me like, oh, come on now. (laughs) But it is, to me, it's really like, you know, given some of the experiences that at least I have had or that other patients that I know have had, you know, there's a real mixed bag when it comes to practitioners. You don't know whether you're going to get the one who says they fixed you even though you don't feel fixed or the one who is willing to sit with you and really figure it out or, you know. It, it you really don't always know what you're going to get. It's like a box of chocolates. <laughs> True. I think what helps and what I try to teach my students mm. and what I think has is shifting in medicine mm. is our comfort level with saying, I don't know. Yeah. With being curious too. Right. Mm. I think the first time we met, I think I said, I don't know. Yeah. To a lot of your questions. I, I mean... I don't recall that because I look at you and I'm like, she knows. (laughs) She's shaking her head. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I think there was a lot of, okay, well, we don't have the answer. Even though you said, I don't know, you were like, but there are ways to maybe find out why. Yeah, that's probably true. And I think it it was also going, okay, I don't know, but. Mm -hmm. 
how are ways that we can know. But you also gave me the option of the different routes that we could take and and the knock-on effects of each option as well. So I felt very informed in terms of my care. And that was also huge because a lot of the time doctors are so pressed with the time they have with patients, you know, it's like, I got to just give you the pill and move on to the next person. But being able to take the time and right. figure and out whether I, that's actually the right approach. And, and I think that that point is, is well made because mm. I, again, I don't think I'm doing anything revolutionary as much as I'm doing what I'm allowed to mm. because I have a great opportunity to take time with my patients. Yeah. And I really feel for my colleagues who sometimes burn out themselves because Mm. they want to give that level of care, but they're always running behind on their clinic schedule because patients need their care. And then at the end of the day, they're, you know, an hour or two behind and then they get caught up on their charts. And then what suffers is their own, is their own care and wellness. And we, we have, we do have this epidemic of physician burnout. Yeah. Um, And I think, Again, it's kind of the same invisible illness that I, that I see, which is stress and fatigue, right? That's what most patients or most physicians who suffer from physician burnout are feeling. Hang on. So I think that's most of what my colleagues mm. and, and physicians who are suffering from burnout often feel, which yeah. is this, you know, overwhelming sense of fatigue and stress because they don't feel like they're doing enough, but yet they're in a situation where they really can't do anymore. Their hands are tied. Yeah. And and offering similarly offering them platitudes of, well, here's a meditation camp that you can go to and why don't you do this five minute breathing exercise between your patients? Uh, again mm-hmm. is similar to me telling my patients to, you know, well, you know, try to meditate daily and mm-hmm. you'll feel better. Yeah. Um I think platitudes across the board just don't serve anyone. But it's really about asking what works for people. Because, like, you and I also arrived on, like, meditation actually works really well for me. You know, so, like, for me to be able to acknowledge that, to experience it, to try different pathways. I mean, we've talked about the Oprah Deepak meditations a lot because we're both big fans. But, like, I only tried them because you were like, well, I tried these ones recently and I really like them. And I think that that's so important because I spoke from my experience. Yeah. Right. And, and so much of integrative medicine is experiential, but it's also so much more personal because of that too. Right. And I actually, um, did a study with residents where we, I gave them a lecture on integrative approaches Mm. and taught them about the benefits of acupuncture, the benefits of meditation and the benefits of yoga. And, you know, we did a little pop quiz and then I actually followed their practices going forward. Um, and one group got the lecture and the other group got an experiential session where they got mm. to feel what acupressure and acupuncture felt like. And they got to practice some yoga and they got to practice some meditation and surprise, surprise, <laughs> the group that got the experiential learning was more likely to actually recommend mm. patients for integrative approaches. Yeah. And I think it, it makes sense, right? You know, they say physician heal thyself, right? Like you Mm -hmm. have to, you have to come from a place where you can address this. And, and so many times, um, there's a lack of empathy because we're all so stressed out and so fatigued that it's easy to be like, well, I don't know what what you want me to tell you because I'm stressed out too. And your your testing doesn't look like there's anything wrong with you. Mm -hmm. So 
And I, I think sometimes when patients come across that, sometimes it is just because the physician's burned out and it's no fault of their own. It's just sometimes that's sort of how how the system's rigged against all of us in that sense, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. This episode is sponsored by Ember Labs, creators of the Ember Wave, the intelligent bracelet that helps control how you experience temperature. I'm heat sensitive, and this device has been a lifesaver. Using patented technology, it cools or warms the temperature-sensitive skin on your wrist, creating a natural response in your body and mind that helps you thermally adjust in minutes. It was selected by Time Magazine as one of 2018's best inventions. For those of you with mounting medical costs to consider, the team at Ember offer a payment plan in partnership with a firm. And now through December 3rd, Ember Labs is offering listeners of Uninvisible Pod $60 off. Go to emberwave.com slash invisible. That's E-M-B-R wave.com slash invisible and experience personal thermal wellness on a whole new level with me. So I'm going to skip around here a little bit, actually. And I'm wondering, do you think that the inroads that you've made and that you're seeing are a lot to do with the fact that we're in hippy-dippy L.A.? And more, more of these boards are like open to the idea of integrative medicine or, you know, like, it's not, like the VA in Minnesota or, you know, somewhere yeah, else in so, the country. Would it be a different story? So yes and no. Um, mm-hmm. I think a few years ago, yeah, absolutely. This kind of stuff was really only in the coasts and yeah. places like that. And, and yoga studios across the country were in like the, the granola part of town, if you will. <laughs> um, I don't think that's the case anymore. Yeah. I think we, we've really seen, um, as the opioid epidemic has continued, as patients, uh, understand the role of chronic stress and we talk about ACEs and we talk about trauma, mm. um, and we talk about wellness and well-being. I think we're seeing this across the country. I think people are looking for alternative options. And, yeah. and when I say alternative, I don't mean it to reject traditional care. I mean it just as in, in a different approach and a complementary one. Absolutely. Mm. Because I don't, I am not opposed to medicine. I, I use standard medical, you know, formulations and prescribe medicines all the time. Um, I think there are problems when patients reject traditional medicine and turn to supplements only or uh, Dr. Google, if you will, because yeah. as great as the internet is, is um, I think the reason I don't mind doing a Google search sometimes with my patients when they have questions is because I can filter out good and bad knowledge, right? And good and bad information. Well, that's huge too, isn't it? In terms of systemic problems, like fake news is part of the problem. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And I mean, specifically when it comes to adrenal fatigue, if you Google adrenal fatigue, you'll get more than 3 million hits. And most of it's repetitive. Most of it's not necessarily accurate. Most of it is just cut and paste from different other websites. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's really just a a, a free for all in the wild west. And so and it's so personal too. It's like not one answer is going to fit every patient. I mean, that's true of so many things, but I think it's incredibly true of integrative medicine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, The way I view integrative medicine is, is, is really a combination of both systemic and individual approaches. I think I 
I think doing integrative group approaches like group wellness, group education on integrative practices, yoga classes, Tai Chi. We do group acupuncture at the VA where we actually use auricular acupuncture. What is auricular acupuncture? Um, is it's, that self acupuncture? It's actually acupuncture in the ear. Oh, okay. So using ear Got it. And so because we're doing auricular acupuncture, we can treat more patients in a group, which really allows us to, to deal with the, the veteran population who are so in need of this care, mm. but can't always access it. And, and acupuncture sessions one-on-one can take up to an hour, yeah. whereas you can do auricular acupuncture and treat more patients in that time. And it's very complementary to standard acupuncture sessions, right? So mm. it can it can boost access. Um, so I'm a big fan of, of group interventions. Mm. That being said, when, when group interventions are introduced, they have to be introduced with some discussion of personal wellness and well-being and self-reflection because I can tell you to go to yoga two times a week and to meditate every day, but you need a a plan and an action plan for your life to get to your personal wellness. And that requires reflection and I'm happy to serve as a guide, but it requires individually individual approaches and, and, and reflection on what your needs are. Mm. Again, that removal of ego come right back full circle. So you've brought up the opioid crisis a couple of times. So, um, can you talk to us a bit about pain management, particularly in your experience working at the VA? I presume that's where it's come up the most. And this widely discussed overuse of opioids in the U.S. and, and this crisis that's evolved and, and how you see it shifting into more perhaps root cause to treat pain or, you know, being able to wean people off of these opioids if they don't need to be on them? Absolutely. So I can speak more to the... Um the weaning and the integrative approach. Um, I kind of grew up in medicine at the same time that opioids were being developed by mm. the pharmaceutical industry and being mass marketed. Um, w- during my training, I certainly started patients who were suffering from cancer pain or post-surgical pain on opiates. Mm. Um, but it was never really part of my practice and part of my training. Um, I, I trained at an institution where we actually, even in a non-integrative clinic, started with kind of an evaluation of what the cause was for pain. So interesting. Um, so I, I don't think it really came from a place of doctors not being trained in how to approach pain. I think it came from... Uh, pharmaceutical companies marketing direct marketing to patients um so often I think, yeah i mean in the number of of investigative reports that have come up about the crisis itself it really comes down to pharma right messing it up and, for all of us and and really you know telling patients that this is the only thing that can mm-hmm. help you and and that's just selling a falsehood yeah um the idea that there's only one approach is inaccurate mm-hmm. to be you know to start with um, so in terms of the, the crisis and, and the etiology, I kind of tend to shift towards more of the pharmaceutical industry rather than physicians not knowing how to address pain. Cause mm. I, I think we're really well trained in that, um, yeah. in terms of, in terms of at least finding out what the cause may be. Mm. Um, 
That being said, once we, for example, identify low back pain, which tends to be the number one thing that people complain about. <laughs> we were what just we, talking about mine. <laughs> what we don't necessarily do a good job of as physicians is, is referring to other interdisciplinary professionals who can help. Mm-hmm. We don't do a good job of referring to physical therapy. We don't do a good job of referring to chiropractors or cranial sacral therapists or neuromuscular therapists or acupuncturists. Yeah. We're doing a better job now. Yeah. Um, and that interprofessional interdisciplinary team is really what integrative medicine is about. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Aside and, from the root cause thing. Right. But I, I think when we, when we do that and we take a team based approach and say, well, I can address the patient's health goals as a physician best when I have a team in place that can help me get there. Which I think patients also realize that they need that too. It's not just a doctor's responsibility to refer you to all these various modalities. It's also, I mean, I took it upon myself as a responsibility to go like, okay, I'm having acupuncture recommended. It's my job now to find the right acupuncturist. I'm having yoga recommended. It's my, my job now to find that practitioner who works best for me. So it really is a two-way street that way. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's where you have to be an active participant in your care. Um, you also mentioned something back earlier when we were talking about the accuracy of hormone testing. And I wondered yeah. if you could dig into that a little bit for us, because I think there are a lot of us who are dealing with hormone imbalance issues and endocrine system issues and like really confused about where to even begin. Absolutely. Yeah. So my mentor in, uh, in endocrinology actually wrote a full book on thyroid hormone testing. Mm. So it's a complex process. If you can dedicate a book to hormone testing yeah. on one hormone access, it just tells you what you're dealing with. Mm. Um, a hormone, as I mentioned, is a biochemical molecule that's secreted in one part of the body mm-hmm. that then travels and ha- exerts its action in another part of the body. And there's different types of hormones uh, in terms of their chemical makeup. Mm. And because of that, some hormones get degraded in the stomach and you have to use them as an injection if you're treating someone. Some hormones are bound to carrier proteins. and Because most people, their understanding of hormones is like estrogen and testosterone. Right. And and on top of that, um, the hormone then has to exert its action at that distant site or the cell in question. And sometimes it binds to the outside of the cell. Sometimes it, you know, is within the cell in terms of exerting its action. And so what I, the analogy I like to, to use, and it's not a perfect one, but, um, the one I like to use is just, you know, turning on the lights of a building, right? Mm. So, when I do hormone testing, I know if there's power going to the building. Yeah. And sometimes I can tell if the lights turn on and off. But I don't necessarily know if the lights on the 14th floor in the back corridor are on or not. Hmm. And I also don't know if they're on at your desk, wherever you're sitting in that building. Or where the light switch is necessarily, right? Correct. Yeah. And so... And that's a crude example and it doesn't necessarily fit, but... It makes sense visually to me, though. But hormone testing is just telling me if the, if the access gland and, and the, the, the access hormone is intact, mm-hmm. right? And, and certainly there are sometimes global deficiencies. 
And when there are global deficiencies, we can clearly diagnose them as an endocrine disorder, right? Mm -hmm. You have hypothyroidism, you have hyperthyroidism, you fit into a category. Yep. Um, but there are times when you don't fit in that category and the, it looks like the power going to the building is, is on, right? Like yeah. when I do the testing, it comes back normal, right? But the patient who is the building is going, mm, the lights aren't on. <laughs> right. Or they're flickering over here and they're, yeah. Right. And, and what I tell people is hormones are a snapshot in time. Mm, that's actually a really good point too, because it is all time release stuff, isn't it? Like, and that's important to know because your cortisol is a great example for that, right? Like it's going to be completely different first thing in the morning than in the afternoon after you've had lunch. And your endocrinologist is well aware of that and yeah. knows when to appropriately test your cortisol. That being said, the nuances in the system, we don't necessarily know. Mm. So for example, in adrenal fatigue, there are some models in, um, in certain populations where patients with chronic fatigue have an abnormality in the binding protein that binds cortisol. Mm. So it doesn't let go of the cortisol in time. So of course I mentioned that and people will say, well, should we be testing for the binding protein? And, and what I would say is probably not, mm. probably not because the truth of the matter is it's really unlikely that you are going to have a diagnosable binding protein abnormality that's just been described in like small research papers. Right. And frankly, the, the places that would do that testing would be number one, not available in the U S and be exorbitantly expensive. Mm. And the treatment would essentially be the same. Interesting. And so, so in a way, some of the testing protocols it doesn't necessarily matter because you know that you're still treating a chronic fatigue issue and you know that it's right. And, that... and most of the time I don't treat chronic fatigue with hormones, right? Mm. Most of my patients that I see who do not have a diagnosable endocrine disorder, but continue to have chronic fatigue, we work on integrative approaches and I continue to monitor their hormones, and sometimes they use herbal supplements that have known activity on hormonal axes and, and glands, mm. but I don't always recommend hormone treatment because yeah. there are dangers with hormone treatment. Um, and the ex analogy that I like to give there is treating with a hormone for fatigue mm. is similar to using a sledgehammer to knock on a door. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. What you need is someone to knock on the door and say, hey, I'm here to help. Mm. But when I treat with a hormone, I'm basically, you know, busting open your door, destroying it, yeah. and then impeding my ability to evaluate it in the future. Right. Because what I'd really love to see for my patients who suffer from chronic illness from fatigue and stress is let's say your hormones are quote unquote in the normal range, but you feel ill. Mm. Let's get a sense of your baseline and what it is. And let's institute some integrative approaches and see if you a feel better or not. And if you feel better, great. If you feel marginally better, great, but let's see what your hormone testing is in follow up because you know, for example, the TSH has a, a normal range of 0 0.4 to 
three and a half, mm. right? It's a really wide normal range. Yeah. On it a sounds mag- like not much, but it's actually quite wide in the world of thyroids. Right. And, and so it's an order of magnitude of 10, mm. right? And so people always ask me, well, the, my TSH came back normal. What, but I still okay, feel but fatigued. where was it in the range? Yeah. Correct. And, and I don't know how to solve that problem globally because those normal ranges were developed when these assays were developed, which mm. was only a couple, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Yeah. And which is also still in, in the world of medical science, even though that's fairly recent in our history, it's a long time ago when it, with regard to science too. Yes and no. It's, it's a, it's a, a long time ago in the terms of modern medical evidence where there's a new journal article every week. Right. It's a really short amount of time when you think about traditional approaches to medicine. And when yeah. I look at traditional approaches to medicine, I look to traditional Chinese medicine and I look to Ayurveda, who in their integrative approaches have these holistic approaches to chronic disease and for fatigue um, especially when it comes to stress and fatigue that are, are not glandular based and they really focus on, on, on a, on a person's, um, energy, how well they match their activity to their energy, where their sources of depletion are, what their sources of nutrition are. And the more I look to those systems, um, the more I think that integrating that approach is going to be what we need long-term. It's interesting because this, I don't know if this is something that you want to talk about, but I'm thinking now about a discussion that we had a few appointments ago where you were talking about where the glands are in the body and how these directly align with meridians that are considered energy centers, right? Well, so yeah, we were talking about the chakra system. Yes. It, they, yeah. yeah. So the meridians, so, um, actually, uh, Deepak Chopra, who is an endocrinologist, actually describes this really well. He's an endocrinologist? I know. Mind-blowing, right? Wait, what? Yeah. (laughs) I just know him as, like, a great meditation guy. I had no idea. Yeah. Oh, well, that's, yeah, totally mind-blowing. Yeah. Um, He describes these as energy maps, Mm. right? And so the traditional Chinese medicine map is of the meridian. Mm. And they explain their disease along these meridians. And the disease occurs when there is a blockage of the vital life force or the chi. Mm. The Ayurvedic system, which is um, the traditional Indian form, which is often associated with yoga, but can be separated Mm -hmm. from the physical practice of yoga. The Ayurvedic system is energy maps based on the chakras and the chakras are described as these energy centers. And if you look online, you can find a million different chakra maps that link them to different Mm. endocrine glands. Um, and I will say that the, the chakra system is something that, uh, has, has been a thorn in my side for, for a number of years because I, I had trouble finding a way to acknowledge the, the value of that description and what I learned in my yoga training and my knowledge of Ayurvedic treatments with my, my training as a, as a physician. physician. Mm -hmm. And, uh, at UCLA, we have a center for East-West medicine where we do traditional Chinese medicine approaches and acupuncture. And I've had discussions with the, the leadership there. And we agree that there has to be a reconciliation of these energy maps, if you will, with yeah. our approaches in 
in Western medicine. And, mm-hmm. and there can be room for both. Yes. And um, there can be room for both responsibly. And when I, when I think about the chakras and, and, and my view of them now with my training and experience, um, I, I do think that viewing them as an energy map is probably the best approach. I think the fallacy uh, lies in linking them directly with an endocrine gland. Interesting. Okay. Because I don't think, you know, for example, the throat chakra. I've been in a million yoga classes where we'll do um, an inversion, specifically like the plow pose where you put your your head, uh, your feet above your head. Right. In a certain position. And I've, I've had a million yoga instructors over the years tell me, well, this activates your throat chakra. So if you're having thyroid problems, this will help. And every time it's said, I cringe on the inside. Because <laughs> <laughs> the idea that you could do a yoga pose to all of a sudden affect your hormonal function doesn't necessarily fit in my head. Well, it's not enough, is it, to, to move your body? There's a million other Right. Factors. I mean, if it was that easy, I wouldn't have a job. (laughs) Well, you'd be a full-time yoga instructor. Right. That's probably what I do. (laughs) Um, so, so breaking that fallacy, but still finding room for Mm. where these are connected. And I think if we talk about it in terms of energy, uh, I think we can get to a lot better of an answer. Mm. Um, I'm working on a book on this as, as we speak on. Can't wait to announce to everyone when it does come out. Yeah, I'll keep you posted. Yes. Uh, it, the book is working title is coping with chronic stress and fatigue. Mm. Um, but one of the chapters will address, um, my view of integrative endocrinology, taking into account these energy maps. Mm. And if we talk about energy medicine and we talk about integrative approaches for chronic stress and fatigue, what we are doing is changing people's energy, right? When you're fatigued, you have low energy. Yeah. Or when you're stressed, your energy is getting displaced in all these different ways. So we really need to speak the language of energy medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, most of my patients who who start feeling like they're on the road to wellness and the ones that start thriving uh, are the ones that take into account some energy-based approach, whether it's yoga, tai chi, uh, Reiki or healing touch, um, or, uh, traditional Chinese medicine or some approach, Mm. it ends up being energy focused and energy based. And, and I don't have the language to explain what the chi is in the body or what the prana is Mm. in the body, other than to say it's the life force. But when we say that and we think about something moving through our body, exerting changes, mm. I've described over and over again that hormones are biochemical molecules secreted in one part of the body that exert their effect somewhere else. I cannot tell you that they're not involved. Mm. I don't have a full explanation of how they can all fit together, but I yeah. think working towards an energy based view of for like optimal integrative of integrative endocrinology, I think will be the, the next advancement. Mm, I think that's really exciting because it's bringing the integration. It's making it even more integrated, if you will. Yeah. You know, I, I think the best kind of example 
I can give in terms of kind of what I'm working with and what I'm thinking about in that regard is, again, going back to adrenal fatigue. So um, if you look at adrenal fatigue in terms of its chronic stress and trauma and the integrative approaches, yoga, tai chi, acupuncture are really helpful. Mm. It um, the patients who are suffering don't necessarily have a hormone problem in their adrenal gland, but their brain changes in terms of how they cope and respond to stress. And to use a lay, lay terminology, the energy they spend on being stressed out makes them feel tired. Yeah. And so if we use that same terminology to describe it in terms of quote unquote, the chakras and that weird part of integrative medicine that no one wants to talk about. The real woo-woo stuff. <laughs> right. You could reasonably say that that energy center is drawing away your vital energy mm. in a blocked way. The same terminology that acupuncturists use when they're che- treating a blockage of the chi. Yeah. And I, and I, I think it's consistent. I think it makes sense. And when I think about it in terms of integrative endocrinology, if we can think about the energy that's used Mm. when people are stressed out, that gives people a way to reframe and refocus and retrain their bodies to better use that energy. And it's really, it sounds like substituting the word energy with the word hormones, right? Like hormones and energy are maybe, 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 the same maybe thing. more linked. May, I don't know if or I can say, linked, yeah, yeah, I don't know if I can say the same thing yet. Right. Um, oh no. I mean, there's, yeah, we don't have but, the research, but it's, it's right. anecdotally. I think, I think they're very linked and, mm. and, and using that terminology, moving forward might get us to more more of the answers we're looking for yeah. and and my curiosity is developing along those lines and that's where I'm spending my efforts yeah um because I have so many patients suffering that yeah. that's where I feel like I could make the most difference yeah I think it's really exciting. I, when you first told me about that, I remember being like, oh my God. And like my mind exploded just like it did when you told me that Deepak Chopra is also an endocrinologist. <laughs> you know, I was like, what? I think, I think when you told me, I actually cried because in a, it, all of a sudden everything sort of, it's like everything stacked up and, and it all made sense. So we're talking about chronic stress um, and, and, and fatigue and, and, and how all of these systems are interconnected. So... One of the things that we touched on, but we could probably dig into a little bit more is like, in what way do you think the healthcare system as it is right now is helping and working for patients? And in what ways do you think it could use the improvement? Is it, is it the improvement in understanding integrative medicine and going more in that direction? That's what we need to do. Is it spending more time with our patients as physicians? Is it... Being yeah, more of an active participant in our healthcare as patients. It's all of that stuff, isn't it? It's yeah, of course. It's going to be. There's not one simple answer to yeah. to get there, but I think why not? Can you? Yeah. That's the one answer, right? Um, 
but but I I think that in terms of what we can do better mm. um, from a healthcare standpoint, I think we can empower our patients more. Yes. Um, I think patient empowerment is key. It's not just patient-centered. We can make things as shiny as pr- and pretty as we like them in the hospital and, and have nice music on the phone when the elevator or nice music on the phone when you're waiting. But, yeah. but, but it's about patient empowerment and a feeling like patients are the ones navigating the system. We want it to work for them. Mm. We want them to feel like they're making educated choices um, that prioritize their needs. And, and that's something that we can do better as a system. Mm-hmm. I think what we can do better as patients is become more self-aware. Yeah. Um, I think we are so far removed from our bodies on an, yeah. on a given day. I, oftentimes we're so attached to our electronics and our electronic monitoring systems, whether it's your Fitbit or whatever tracker you're using, um, that, we don't know what we feel like, mm, right? Yeah. And and if we don't know what we feel like, we can't advocate for what we need. Sometimes it's just unplugging, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So has your experience turned into advocacy on a larger scale too? Like, I mean, you're sitting on these boards, you're writing your book, you know, like you've got a lot of irons in the fire for sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm not the kind of patient advocate that's, you know, leading marches and, and speaking to Congress. Um, but I think advocacy is, is a patient at a time. Mm. And that's how I view it because, because it, it's about personalized care and, and the best advocates that I've seen for my son who has chronic disease and a lot of healthcare usage, Mm. um, have, have viewed him as a person who who needs help and needs care and have understood his personal needs. Mm. So uh I view myself as a as a as a one-on-one advocate if you will. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> um uh not necessarily advocate with a capital A, maybe mm. advocate with a little A. Yeah. Um, well, you're not, advocating for your son, absolutely. And and advocating for my patients one-on-one mm-hmm. individually. And not just for your son, for all of your kids. Like it's not just right. like right. just the one. <laughs> yeah. I have two others that are also them. equally important and loved. Yes. yes. But but I think that role of advocacy which is is not necessarily championed, but mm. is so integral to what we do. Well, you've got um, to know my mom. She comes with me in my appointments. Correct. It's the same thing with you and your kids. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think that we have to recognize as physicians that we do have a role to play in that because sure, um, there are social workers in clinics and we can, you know, ask our, our back office staff to help with paperwork and this and that and the other. But, um, taking the extra step if needed to, to make that call yourself or Mm. to fax that piece of paper yourself, um, can expedite things. And, and, and certainly that comma MD behind my name offers me power and, um, legitimacy in a way that my patients don't necessarily feel when they're calling. Right. Um, and so I, I recognize that. I know that, um, I, I use it for my patients. I, use it when appropriate with my child with medical needs. (laughs) Um, so, so I think advocacy on a, on a individual scale is where I really see myself, but I don't think that that makes it any less important. I just think it just is different. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, 
you're really doing a service to patients in that you are also empowering us with information. It's like part of the reason that you're spending time with us and getting to know our case history is to also be able to go, okay, well, you know, here are some things we can consider. And and going through all of that detail, I think, with patients enables us to think more deeply about the things that are going on in our body and to start to connect better as well. So it, again, it's that two-way street of like, we have to be open as patients to listening Right. To changing our worldview and our, our point of view with regard to our health. But our physicians have to also be picking up where we sort of leave off. And so it's a you're always passing the baton back and forth, aren't you? Yeah, we're partners in your care. Yeah. And that's yeah. how it should be viewed. Yeah. And what about keeping dialogue open in terms of invisible illness? Like, yeah, where do we go from here? So I think, you know, the, the power of social media and mm. and the power of the connection that we are able to have through technology is huge these days for so many years uh when i struggled as a, a new parent with a child of special needs um my only sources of comfort were online support groups mm. and and i thought to myself you know, if only I could find, you know, that one person that was just like me who struggled with the same things I did mm. and whose kid had the same diagnosis that mine has. And, you know, I actually ended up finding not just one, but multiple of those people wow. online. Yeah. And, and certainly, um, you know, we, we have developed a friendship over the years and, but we've, we've faced our challenges in different ways. Right. So but also together, like you've got and support. together. Right. So, so I think in terms of keeping the dialogue open, I think that, you know, social media, it has Connect. its pluses and minuses, but, but this allows a way for, for patients to just find their home. Yeah. You know, um, I would love for patients to feel like they felt at home in their bodies, but mm. so many of them don't. Yeah. And, and it's a journey to get there, I think, too. But again, it, there isn't just one approach. Right. There's a million different approaches. All right. Here's a fun question. Okay. Should nobody be eating gluten? Is it the devil? <laughs> also the same about dairy. Are dairy and gluten devils? <laughs> Boy. Um, <laughs> so as someone who had a you know, tea and biscuits yesterday at 3 p.m. <laughs> with whole milk and a cookie made of wheat flour and sugar. And my answer is going to be no. Because <laughs> it was glorious to have yeah. tea time with biscuits and and a hot cup of Earl Grey. It was great. You're describing my perfect tea time. <laughs> right? Um, so no, not the devil. But I think people are sensitive to different ingredients. And you have to know yourself and know what you can tolerate. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, it's not always everything in moderation because some people are so sensitive that they can't tolerate it even in moderation. Yeah. So I, I'm a huge advocate for patients who want to restrict or try elimination diets with the understanding that an elimination diet is done for a short period of time to cool the inflammation off. And, and then you with supervision from a medical professional. Correct. Um, and with the plan of reintroducing possibly non-aggravating foods, mm. right? And I think so many people, whether it's elimination diets or AIP or FODMAPs, um, they become so restrictive and they feel better. Mm. 
But you see them a few years later and they're like, well, it's not working for me anymore. And you're like, well, perhaps you restricted so much that you're not getting the micronutrients that you need. And that's also related to just the psychology of food restriction in general, isn't it? Yeah, I do see a, an overwhelming amount of orthorexia in my practice. So orthorexia is a term that's been coined recently discussing uh, patients who develop um many, many rules around which they eat. And it's not a, it's not a, you know, psychiatric diagnosis. It's not listed in the DSM, for example, but it is something that I see in patients, especially my younger women who, you know, want to be careful about what they put in their bodies because they view their bodies as a temple and it, and it comes from the greatest of intentions, but the amount of time they spend restricting number one takes away energy from other things that can be doing and contributes, that. contributes to their stress. Yeah. And then the amount of restriction they're doing puts them at risk for developing micronutrient deficiencies. Right. And we shouldn't really be seeing that in this country. We have fortified grains and, and, and nutrition. But and unfortunately we also have packaged foods. And correct. <laughs> and, exactly. And, and the fortified grains that we tend to see are, are basically, cereals and I'm not a huge advocate of cereals since so many of my patients who have diabetes do poorly on cereals. Mm. So I don't want to make it sound like it's so easy. Yeah. Um but it's I getting think easier though. Access that, is easier. But I think that, you know, it's it's always a, a pendulum swing. And I think maybe the pendulum swung a little too far in terms of the elimination and restriction. Mm. And maybe we can take a tailored approach. Yeah. Um but I think part of the reason patients have gone so far the other way is that, especially when it comes to gluten testing, we tend to take a, you know, well, you have celiac or you don't. We were talking about this before I hit record. And yeah. yeah. And, and the thing about it is we know now that, you know, there's gluten sensitivity that doesn't necessarily meet a diagnostic criteria for actual celiac that affects the, you know, the lining, lining, the, stomach, yeah. the lining of the gut. And so, um, and I don't pretend to be an integrative gastroenterologist. I work with colleagues of mine who are experts in this area, and I would defer to their expertise in terms of answering it. Mm. But I will say that um, I see so many of my patients who are gluten-sensitive and dairy-sensitive yep. despite not having a true allergy and or celiac disease. And that may also be just because of the way in which these foods are processed as well. Cause it's like, if you were having the milk from the cow, you might be all right. But by the time it gets to you in the supermarket, it's a totally different thing. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So that's about being aware of sourcing, trying things out, trying the elimination diet, as you say, reintroducing. I mean, it's very interesting because, you know, I talk about how I'm on AIP, but I'm also very flexible with it. You know, it's like, I know that my body is less inflamed when I, follow those rules, if you mm -hmm. will. But I'm also not going to waste stress and waste energy on every piece of minutiae that's related to what I'm putting in my body every single day. Because for the most part, I'm pretty on top of it. And I know if I have something that inflames me, I'll know pretty immediately. And I can just eat more healing foods that will help me feel better. So that it's a balancing act constantly, just like it is with your energies and your hormones and all of and it. Absolutely. And I, and I see not this, absolutely. and I see this most often, truthfully, not with my patients who are struggling with AIP and celiac. I see it often with my diabetic patients. And right? that's gotta be harder too. Cause it's like, you're told 
can't eat this, this about a lot of stuff right. when you're diabetic. And, you know, diabetes is a, is a chronic disease. And mm-hmm. the stress that comes from that, yeah. where they feel like they need to restrict the amount or what they're eating, um, can take its toll, especially yeah. for my type 1 diabetics who run multiple injections a day and they have mm-hmm. to count their carbs and... You know, they're on a fixed regimen, but all of a sudden it's someone's birthday at work. And you're like, well, I want a cupcake too, but I'm not allowed to have one. And, and you know, that that's one aspect of it. And then we, yeah. we also have, you know, my type 2 diabetics who suffer from oftentimes being overweight and obese. And sometimes they feel judged when they, sure. quote unquote, don't eat properly. Um, and, and it contributes to, you know, fat shaming and this and that and the other. And I think... As a general approach, I think we just need a little bit of kindness and compassion mm. um, to ourselves. Yeah. Right? Food is food is essential as nutrients, but food is also comfort. Mm. Food is social connection. Food is family. Food joy. food is joy, right? Yeah. Um and and, it is for me at least. Right. And, <laughs> it's not and the for thing, everyone. and the thing is when we, when that emotional connection gets out of whack, then mm. we see emotional eating problems. But then when we lose that emotional connection completely, then we see other problems. And yeah. I, again, it's about finding balance, which yeah. sounds so simple <laughs> and is yet is so challenging. <laughs> but that's why it's great to have a physician or a team of physicians that you can work with to find what works for you. Cause I think a lot of us have sensitivities and a lot of the sensitivities that we see, at least in this country, have to do with the way in which foods are processed. I think that's quite clear environmentally. Um, and it's easy to remedy those problems if you live in a place with easy access to a good farmer's market and, you know, good farming practices that you can rely on. But not everyone has a local Whole Foods or, you know, a local... Right. A local farmer's market. And, and so. food deserts are a big issue in this country yep. that... that- disproportionately uh impact uh pac- patients of color yeah. who who struggle and and frankly wellness shouldn't fall across racial lines and it, and it certainly does in this yeah. country and I and I would love to be part of that change and really mm. seeing that change happen uh, I think offering um you know improved access to integrative approaches whether it's group delivery or telemedicine delivery can help deal with that aspect of it mm. in terms of food um it becomes a big deal if you can't you can't reliably ask someone to go drive 30 miles to source a meal yeah um that's not a reasonable ex- expectation so i try to meet my patients where they are mm. and if and if food changes aren't the the step we can make right now will work towards making incremental steps until we can. Yeah. I think that's very reassuring. So for people who are making these, these changes in their, their lifestyle, right. Be it food or something else. Again, balance, a balance question, right. You know, do do we have to upend our lives entirely? Even if you're a type two diabetic, do you have to upend your life entirely or can you take these incremental steps or, um, you know, cheat, once in a while. So sustainability to me is all about incremental steps, mm. right? So I think um, to use the example of diabetes, right? Whenever you're first diagnosed with diabetes, one of the biggest challenges is reframing your life and your food and your eating as a diabetic now mm. and, and, and accepting the label, 
even though we hate to label our patients, it, it is true. You, you are now forever watching your sugars, testing your sugars, watching your carbohydrate intake. But there's a lot easier ways to do it now than there were 20 years oh, ago. Oh, absolutely. Even, I know? mean, apps have made life so much easier. Yeah. It's, it's really... But it's even more. like devices, like the glucose monitors that people Correct. can get. I mean, and, and technology has made it incredibly... Um, Accessible. Uh, accessible and also uh, uh, actionable, mm. right? Because we, we, we now have alerts that tell us if your sugar is going up or down. And so patients kind of know what they're facing. It's just the cost of insulin. That's the problem, right? That's another yeah, that's a whole, that's, a, that's another podcast. Yeah. That's going to be a, another episode. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, so, so part of it is just accepting that new identity mm. and, and, and that acceptance is really key because yeah. if you can accept that, then maybe you're not going to get so off track mm. that you feel like your entire life path has been derailed by being diagnosed as diabetic, for example. Yeah. Um, you want to take it in your stride a bit more, really, don't you? Yeah. Just offer yourself compassion and kindness because we are not all going to live our lives without disease touching yeah. us. In fact, most of us will live a life with disease that touches us in some way. Exists. There Correct. will always be stories. Correct. And so if you can accept it and then make steps forward, mm. and it's so easy when we're faced with change to be avoidant of that change. Yeah. Um, Which is a stressor that then makes our systems go even more haywire. Right. And so being accepting of the change and making incremental steps forward. Mm. And, you know, when I see a type 2 diabetic and we do a detailed history and we do a diet history, I'm not going to tell them, all right, well, you need to be vegan and you need to stop eating all carbs and, you know, don't have any, any more juice for the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, that's not usually what I'm saying. I usually tackle the things that are easy to tackle first and... Part of me getting a diet history is not what do you eat, but what did you eat yesterday? Mm. And and why did you eat it, right? Because oftentimes no one wants to say they had the third slice of pizza that they didn't need to have or yeah. even admit that they had pizza. Or but... they're not aware enough of their bodies to even know. Correct. Yeah. And so getting to why we make the food choices we make, getting to understand how we can make small changes that lead to larger impact mm is going to be the step forward, whether it's diabetes or any chronic disease. Mm, I really like that. So I'm ready to wrap it up with you. I've got one last question. Sure. What are your top three tips for someone who feels off, thinks they might have some kind of invisible or chronic illness coming into their lives or, or are already living with invisible illness? What would you suggest for these patients? Um, yeah, I think it's a matter of, um, being persistent, mm. you know, don't, don't let someone else tell you how you feel. Mm. Right. Um, but you also have to document how you feel because feeling bad doesn't give me a lot of information, yeah. right? I feel bad. Doesn't really tell me which ways you feel bad, how it impacts your life. Mm. You know, you know, telling me more about and documenting for your own reflection the ways in which you feel bad or things that have triggered you feeling bad documenting yeah. and, I mean, and keeping a just like, keeping a journal or a diary yeah. of your of your symptoms um can be so useful so you can reflect and start to notice patterns and trends yeah. so being persistent 
documenting, and then being open-minded. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know we talk a lot about physician open-mindedness, but I think as patients yeah, also, um, being open-minded to a path that maybe you thought wasn't right for you. Mm-hmm. Like, well, I never want to do that because I heard so-and-so did that and they had a bad outcome, so I'm never going to take that medicine ever again. Mm-hmm. Or I don't want to see such and such specialist because of whatever reason being open-minded to the meandering route to health and wellness because it's not isn't a straight shot is it it's very rarely a straight shot i don't know one person for for whom it's been a straight shot um even our people who are modicums of health you know have had their dips in their in their path before and so just being open-minded to the changes documenting what you've been through and being persistent in in and honest in your feelings well the honesty i think is a big one too isn't it because it's also about removing the ego which i'm like okay this is a this is one of the big talking points of this episode Mm -hmm. was removal of ego well dr muller is there anything else you'd like to add and and can you tell patients where they can find you if they want to? Because yeah. now everyone's going to want to come and see my practice. <laughs> yeah. So, I better make all my future appointments now. <laughs> so um, my, my practice is at UCLA. Mm. Um, I also see veteran patients at the VA. So um, I'm available on the UCLA website. Um, I do do quite a bit of speaking and educating. Um, so... Um, Anyone who's interested in that, um, I will be having a personal website for speaking and education <gasps> topics. Because um, I think, you know, patient education is key and physician education is key. Yeah. And, and just letting the larger audience know that you're not unheard. Mm. We see you. You're not invisible. Um, and, you know, we may not have all the answers, but we're determined to get there. Thank you so much, Dr. Muller. It's been such a pleasure having you on, and I cannot wait for people to, to hear your voice. Thank you. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.